Lisa. Uh, Gail is out this morning, and uh, so Lisa is helping us. We're glad to have her back using her talents and skills as well. If you're able to remain standing, let's look at our next portion of Psalm 119. Psalm 119, beginning at verse 41, and we'll read down through verse 48. That's on page 513, if you would like to just grab a Bible from the church in front of you, and uh, that would get you over to our same passage. Psalm 119, beginning at verse 41. These are God's words for us this morning, and here's what God says. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules." I will keep your law continually, forever and ever. And I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings, and shall not be put to shame, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. And I will lift my hands toward your commands, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. You may be seated. Father, thank you. There is nothing like your word. No other word is yours. And your word is true. And it's powerful. It's living. We've not just read some old words from an old book. But we've, living, we've read your words that are forever settled in the heavens and therefore are alive and able to perform that which it even speaks. And so, Father, may your word perform its work in our hearts and in our lives this morning. For we ask and pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're, we're motoring our way through Psalm 119, eight verses at a time. Eight verses because that's the natural uh, way that this psalm um, structures itself. Every eight verses is a new subunit of Psalm 119. And overall, every, every nook and cranny of Psalm 19 explores the functional importance of the Word of God in the life of a follower of Christ. As we look at this particular unit, verses 41 to 48, we see as in true so far, every unit, while it, 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 it underscores the functional importance of God's Word in our lives, every unit has its own unique peculiar slant or, or angle of looking at that, its own emphasis and uh, as we look at verse 41 to 48, really, I, I think the best way to capture what's going on in this unit is to realize that it probably is, is looking back and, and, and picking up some of the same matters and issues that we explored back in verses 21 to 23. Look at those verses just for a second. Um, the psalmist was going through a, a difficulty, a, a, a situational, a, a circumstantial difficulty. 
He says there in verse 21, you rebuke the insolent, um, the, the accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away the scorn uh, from me, the scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. For even though princes plot against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. You see, back then we noticed that, that the psalmist was, was, um, uh, he was facing, an, if you would, an interpersonal conflict. People were out to get him. I mean, this was not simply a matter of, uh, of they were in a weekday preschool and the one student said, teacher, he's looking at me wrong. No, the, these were people that were in uh, uh, po- positions of power. Uh, he, he says there back in verse 23, princes were plotting against him. People of, 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 of power who were nonetheless probably envious of his own position uh, they, they were powerful people seeking to harm him and, and to uh, oppress him, if you would. They were out to get him. He was under attack. I think this, verse, this, this passage picks up a little same themes. Verse 42, then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me. The ones who treated him with contempt and scorn, who were taunting him. They're back, or they've really, they've not gone away. They're still there. Or his allusion in verse 23 to princes putting against him, he, he picks up that similar language in verse 46, and, and I will speak of your testimonies before kings. So here's his problem. It's the same problem that we visited back in the, a couple of previous units. The psalmist is under attack by people who've got the muscle and the power to inflict real harm. And what I want us to see from this particular emphasis in this unit is where does the psalmist go when he's attacked as such? What does the psalmist do when he's assaulted in this way? Uh, Where does the psalmist turn when he wants out of that circumstantial, situational difficulty? Where does the psalmist go when he he needs uh, some alleviation from the the, the struggle that he is facing? What we see is that the psalmist turns to. The psalmist waits on. The psalmist appeals to. The psalmist draws from the promises of God. Now, what I mean by that, the promises of God, I don't mean that as just a, as a, just a mere concept. When I say the promises of God, really what I'm saying is he draws from, he waits on, he appeals to, he turns to the God who makes such promises. Two things I want us to note from this passage. They're, they're listed there as a bulletin insert if it's helpful for you to, to use that and to follow along. First, I want, to see, uh, I want us to see something about a life that perseveres in the promises of God. And that's going to be the first four verses of this unit. And then I want to note something of a life that promotes the promises of God. And that's the second four verses of this unit. The quickest way to jump us in the middle of this, knowing that the, what the context is, is to look at what he says in verse 41. Let your steadfast love, O Lord. Now stop right there, um, because most of your Bibles 
will do something that's very important to make note of. The term Lord there is not simply Lord meaning, meaning a title or a designation of someone who's in charge of you. There are times with that that's how the word Lord is used in the Scriptures, but that's not that term. You'll notice there that it's large capital L and then followed by capital O, capital R, capital D. Now, when you see it that way, really you're not, you're not looking at a title or a designation. You're looking at the revealed name of God. We would, in the Hebrew, we would say Yahweh, 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 something like that. This is, this is the name that God has revealed to the people whom he lives in covenant with. He's God to everybody. But he is Yahweh to his people. Just call me Yahweh. This is a personal name here. The other thing I want us to note of is the first term that we run into where he says, Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord. So the name Yahweh coupled with the term steadfast love. Again, what we're learning here is this, there is something really important that is the bedrock of living a life that perseveres in the promises of God. And that is, when you couple the name Yahweh with the term steadfast love, we, we are in covenant language here. Steadfast love is that beautiful term that speaks of the, of the, of the loyalty and the devotion that God displays to His people. In fact, we could spend all day trying to sort out the meaning of that beautiful term, and and um, we don't have the time, nor nor or even do I have the brain wherewithal to unpack that. So just for now, we just just camp on and meditate on the notion that that for those who belong in covenant with God, we are the recipients. Of his loving devotion. We are, we are the beneficiaries of all that is entailed in his stick-to-itiveness, his determination to be with and for his people. Now, I say that to remind us that, that the promises of God are, are not just this detached concept. The promises of God belong to God, and the promises of God belong to those who belong to God. You see, God doesn't do casual friendships. And and the beauty of that, it's not that God is not friendly. I don't mean that. Uh, But what I mean by that is in all the positive ways. There is, for, the, for those who live in covenant relationship with God, there is nothing superficial about that relationship. It's deep, it's intimate. There, there is nothing fickled about that relationship. Most of us have friends that are here today and gone tomorrow. And we're like, well, some friends that is, you know, but, but that God doesn't do casual, fickled, superficial relationships. God lives covenantally with those whom, who are, are his people. 
I mean, the, 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 the most beautiful description, one of the most beautiful, it's, I say the most beautiful description, one of the most beautiful descriptions in the Bible, I'm getting carried away, ain't I? Uh, is just the simple statement, I will be their God and they shall be my people. That runs from the books of Moses all the way through to the book of Revelation. That's where life is. That's what life consists of, living in relationship with God, which is a covenantal relationship. It consists of God making covenantal promises, and it consists of God providing covenantal obligations. Now, I preface that to say that, so then when he says in the second part of verse 41, which is parallel to the first part of verse 41, where he says, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. He's describing about how life operates in covenant relationship with God. God provides salvation according to promise for those who live in covenant relationship with him. Now, when we see the word salvation, we think of, uh, of, of that term that is commonly used in the Scriptures that describes how it is that God would, um, would pardon people like us of our sins, how He would rescue people like us from our bondage to sin, how He would secure eternal life so that we would avert hell at the end of our lives, how we would be adopted as His well-loved children. All, we, we think of salvation, if you would, as capital S, salvation. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. And yet, and yet sometimes the term salvation is used not in that big capital S kind of way, but it's re- it just refers to the fact that in any one particular moment or episode of our lives, God rescues us from that mess. God delivers us from that trial. Uh, God steps in and intervenes in that difficulty. And that's probably how he's using it here in this context. Remember, here's the difficulty that he's facing. But he knows that living in covenant with God means this. That God gives promises to his people to rescue and to deliver his people from their troubles. You see how important it is to live with a cognizance, an awareness, an appreciation for, well, what has God promised? What, what, what has He been saying in His Word that, that applies to the routines and the difficulties and the hardships and the struggles of my life? Does He have a word for me this week? Yes, He does. I don't know what you're facing. I'm interested in hearing about it, but I don't know. I could guess. But, but the, the beauty is, I, I don't, what, no, matter, no matter what the difficulty is that you're facing, whether it's medical or, or financial or emotional or circumstantial or relational, I, 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 know, I know this, however big the problem is that is confronting you that you are facing God's promises are bigger. So it's, it's, it's very important that we're alert to, that we lean into, that we're aware of. What are these promises? Because otherwise, when life hits us, it hits us hard. 
And it's just so easy to crumble and to be overwhelmed by life's problems. Part of the current shakiness of our culture, the part of the current fragility of our culture is this is a this is a weird world to live in. It's a hard place, it's a mean place, it's a harsh place, it's a difficult place. And 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 when we feel the weight of that, we do buckle. Unless you found some way to to numb yourself of, of that, which will create its own layer of problem later. So what do we do when we are tempted to be overwhelmed by life's problems? Well, when we couple it with the worst-case scenario, we, when we move through life overwhelmed by life's problems and underwhelmed by God's promises, that's when we feel the weakness and the fragility of our current life. Where God's promises are vague, where they are faint, then problems seem bigger and stronger and more daunting than promises. But by the grace of God, where God's promises become more vivid, where they become more familiar and near to us, then in a sense we begin to see things rightly. We see problems in proportion to promises. And, and that's what's motoring into the heart of the psalmist here. So he says in verse, the second part of verse 42, so I will trust in your word. The second part of verse 43, so I will hope in your rules. And then the second part of verse 44, forever and ever. In other words, he, he is knowing that his his his. his What he can count on is God to deliver him. What he can hope in is God will deliver him. and, And he knows that he can keep on hoping and trusting in God because there's no expiration date on the on the promises of God. They go on forever and ever, and so we can hope in them and trust in them forever and ever. There's a a certain present as well as future confidence that the psalmist has as a result of living in covenant relationship with God that will motor him through, that will enable him through, that will strengthen him in the midst of the difficulties that he is facing. So he is persevering, a life that perseveres in the promises of God. The second thing I want to briefly make note of then is not only do we see in this psalm that the promises of God give us a reason and an ability to persevere, but the promises of God are also something that we can promote in our lives. We can display um, the truthfulness and the effectiveness of the promises of God. And I think that's what we, we see working itself out in verses 45, 46, 47, and 48. He says things like, and I shall walk in a wide place. Now we'll come back to what that means in a minute, wide place. But just imagine, what do you do when you're walking? What do you use? There you go. You see, you thought that was a trick question, didn't you? Yeah. So, so his feet are in motion. Right? 
because of what's percolating around in, in terms of what he's hoping in and what he's trusting in. He, 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 is, in, he is moving. He is, he is promoting the promises of God through the direction and action of his life. And then he says in verse 45 and uh, verse 46, I will also speak of your testimonies before kings. Uh, now, when you speak, what are you using? All right, see there, you guys are on it now. We use words, we use our lips, we use our mouth. The testimonies of my lips will be promoting your promises. Now this is a trickier one uh, to get maybe when he says in verse 48, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love. Now when... Now, you, you lift up your hands, but well, why, do you, why would you lift up your hands? Well, maybe there's more than one reason, but what I would suggest to you here is what he is doing by lifting up his hands is he is yearning and, and submitting himself to the Lord and to the Lord's commands. Lord, I, I yield myself to what your word says. Lord, I, I yearn for what your word says. So see, we got, we got a lot of external action going on here in terms of how he's promoting the, the promises of God. He's doing it with his feet. He's doing it with his hands. He's doing it with his lips. And he's not just doing that to showboat because he, he tells us here that there's, there's things percolating around in his own inner being as well that pertains to promoting uh, God's commands. He, he says there, at verse 47, for I find my delight in your commands, which I love. In other words, emotionally, he is in a good spot. The promises of God have made his heart happy. So he's haplifying himself in the promises of God. He's promoting the promises of God by showing these are wonderful. Uh, but then at the second part of verse 48, there's another activity going on under the hood. I will meditate on your statutes. In other words, I'll think about them. I'll mull them over. I'll, I'll mutter them. And, and so and, and not only is he using his lips, but he's also engaging his ears. He's hearing himself talk, if you would, as he is meditating and muttering uh, on God's promises. Uh, do, you, do you see all that's going on here? This, uh, the psalmist, because he is trusting and hoping in God's promises forever and ever, he is fully oriented by, uh, he's fully engaged with the promises of God. They, 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 are, they, are, they are directing how he walks or lives. They are directing how he talks or speaks. They are directing how he uses his hands, yielding in submission to the Lord. They, they, are, they are affecting how he um, he emotes how he feels. They're, they're affecting how his brain is following and thinking and reasoning. Now, for all of that to make sense, I, I want to suggest something to you here. In particular, he says it once again uh, in verse 47. For I find my delight in your commandments. This is at least the fourth time in Psalm 119, and we're not by far done yet. But this is the fourth time in Psalm 119 that he explicitly connects the term delight to the commands of God, to the word of God. We can't miss this. We must not miss this. Because 
I, I think we read that, but we haven't let that settled in. We haven't marinated or meditated upon the significance of that. There is, a, there is a very different shift in the posture of the psalmist's heart in relationship to God's Word. That I think if, if you and I aren't careful, if we, you and I don't think about this and mold this over, I think many of us are tempted to entertain a very fatal error about God's Word. It, it, it's, it's a mindset that still percolates in our hearts, even as children of God. It certainly percolates in our hearts if we're not children of God. It's, it's a mindset that is just part of the ethos, the air we breathe in our culture. And it certainly is a very intended strategy of our enemy. And it goes something like this. The Word of God, now watch yourself, folks. The Word of God is God's head trip to display exactly how harsh he is to limit us, to control us, to restrict us, to confine us. Anything that the Word of God says. So, so anything the Word of God says about the family. Well, we're told today in our culture that, that, the, that how the Scripture ordains and structures a family is actually a, a, an ongoing method of oppression. And we need to throw off the, that notion of family so that we can be released from our oppression. See, see, see God's given this, these instructions for the family, and we're thinking, ah, ah, that's what I thought. He wants me to be a part of a family, have a husband and a wife and kids, because He's out to ruin my life. He wants to limit me, control me, restrict me, and confine me. And so he's got me locked up in this family. And we need to throw off those vehicles of oppression. Now, they just took it off their website because they were getting so much backfire on this. But but that's one of the stated intentions of BLM. Not that any of us would be opposed to, to, to harming, that, that anyone would be opposed to wanting to harm someone because of a certain skin pigmentation. But when this goes beyond that and, 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 and says that we, 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 we want to throw off what God has said in his word about family, then, well, they done kicked up the dust. You see, the earliest attack on God's Word that, that marinated into the heart of man uh, uh, was, was questioning not simply the truthfulness of God's Word, but the innate goodness of God's Word. When the, when the serpent said in the garden, for God knows that when you eat this, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. See, see, embedded in that is that the devil was saying, God's got it out for you. He's trying to limit you and confine you and to control you and to restrict you. He's wanting to bring your life down, keep you under his thumb. Now see, if that's the operating premise on which the word of God lands on us, do you, do you, you see, then when we hear the psalmist saying, for I delight in your commandments, we're like, huh? 
delight in your commandments. I mean, next you're going to tell me you like spinach. Which, by the way, I like spinach. But anyway, you get the point. I'm just banking on the fact that many of you don't like green things, you know. Uh, Vegetable-wise. You like other kind of green, but... um, you see, that, that error still echoes in our hearts and minds. And yet for us to see things rightly, for us to have a major reset in, in, in our lives, a, a, a better point of reference that, that orients how we want to think and feel about God's Word, it, it, would, it would reorder, it would restore order to our lives so that our hands and our lips and our feet and all that we are and all that we consist of delights. In the law of God. You see, every, every act of behavioral or mental or emotional disobedience to God's word is really rooted in another layer of just simply the, what, what took us there was really a heart of unbelief. We were questioning the truthfulness and the goodness of God. Maybe look at it this way. Which is it? Which is the Word of God? In one scenario, it, it, it's often thought that maybe the Word of God, it, 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 well, yeah, it provides the path and it provides the railing that keeps us. Well, therein lies where we depart. Keeps us what? We think, well, it keeps us out of the world that God made for us to enjoy. In other words, it's just an act of cruelty. He made us this world that's an enjoyable, beautiful world. Then he says, stop that! It's almost as like God built all of the amusement parks at Disney World in Orlando. And he built them all, but then he put up this large fence... And said, ain't it pretty in there? Uh-huh. Ain't it beautiful? Uh-huh. Ain't there a lot of enjoyable things to do in there? Uh-huh. Get away from the fence! And see, if, if, that, if that's the, the disposition we bring toward God's word, then it ain't going to make a bit of sense when the psalmist says, I delight in your commands, which I love. See, in, the, in this mindset, it, 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 the Word of God is the warnings and prohibitions to fence us out of, of that which is delightful and lovely. Or, what the Word of God really is, is the Word of God provides the path and the railings for navigating the world that He has made for us to enjoy, but has been hijacked and made dangerous by our enemy. So what the world of 
the Word of God keeps us from is, is not the Disney world, if you, if you would, but what he actually keeps us from is that our enemy has put minds in that field. And our life is maneuvering through uh, the minefields of life. And God's good word is, is, is not to keep us away from that which is delightful and enjoyable, but God's word is to keep us away from that which is fatal and destructive. His warnings and prohibitions are birthed from the heart of a good father who wants to keep us safe and alive and finding delight in all that he has made. It's a good God. And that is why we can connect the dots and say, therefore I will delight in your commands, which I love. Because we have to buy into this huge assumption, this premise that there is not a single restriction or prohibition in God's law that is meant to limit or confine or, or to keep you down or, or, to, uh, or to control you or to limit you. No, He has come that we might have life and have it abundantly. And He's providing us in His Word how you and I might wisely navigate this world and walk safely in it, finding the full delight and joy that he has provided to us in this world. Now, keep in mind, just as a sidebar, uh, moms and dads, I mean, part of your assignment is to help your kids realize, no, you can't do whatever you want. You can't do that. You can't go there. You can't talk like that. You can't say that. You can't behave that way. But as sure as we are the ones who are are to to move in and to help orient them to that, we have to understand that we must do it in a way analogous to the way God does it. And that is, He's not a harsh father. He doesn't exasperate His children. Out of His love and delight in His children, He gives us His good word Moms and dads, out of your love and delight in your children, give them good instruction. Help them to realize that, no, you can't do whatever you want because I love you too much and don't want to see you destroy your life in your foolishness. So our job is not just to issue orders and to direct commands. Yes, we got to do some of that. We got to do much of that. And yet our, order is, our first order is to make sure that we are overwhelming our kids with warmth and love and embrace and acceptance and kindness. That's what our Father does for us and with us. So I'll close with this. That's why he says there in verse 45, And I shall walk in a wide place. Just like he said earlier in a couple of, couple of units before this, he talked about enlarging his heart and what we noted by that it's really the language of freedom and liberation, that his heart would be liberated and free to do what is right. Well, the same sort of imagery here, that when we, when we see God's word rightly so that it is the cause for our delight, we love it, then, then we get to walk in the truest sense of freedom. We get to this, the, the, the picture 
picture here is of a wide place, but really the, the notion here is of, of we get to walk freely and in liberation. We are not in bondage to anything on this planet. We are not in bondage to even our own false impulses and desires. We are the freest of all people because we are free to do that which God made us to do in the first place, and that is to love Him and to live for Him and to worship Him and to delight in Him. There's never any more freedom than when you and I are walking in accordance with God's Word. And that's why Jesus came. Because our own, on our own, we can't liberate ourselves. On our own, we can't strike out on our own and find our own path of freedom. That's just another avenue of bondage and enslavement, actually. But Christ came, and he lived a life of perfect obedience. He was sinless, as the song said earlier. He was, therefore, the spotless lamb, as the song said earlier. And as a sinless, spotless lamb, lamb, he became a substitute for you and for me, really for any of us who would be trusting in the Lord Jesus this morning. At the cross, he did a swap out. He took our sins and bore up under its punishment, its just punishment, its curse. And then in exchange for Uh, For him wearing our sin and bearing up under its punishment, he gave to us the very righteous life that he himself lived while he was here on this earth. So that we now are righteous in the sight of God. Out of that loving relationship, you and I this week can walk in wide places. Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you for how your word teaches us and instructs us. Thank you for what your word says about you and your word. And so, Father, may we see your word rightly. May we see what it is correctly. And may your word percolate in our hearts effectively this week. May we see Jesus and may we follow him. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.